This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large at Mississippi Today and cartoonist as well. Black history is American history. So today, the last day of Black History Month, we welcome civil rights activist and Mississippi's youngest freedom writer, Hezekiah Watkins. I love this guy. I can't wait to talk to him. Gwen Harmon's here as well. He's the director of the Smith Robinson Museum. Gwen, Hezekiah, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's a beautiful day out there. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, Hi, thanks. It's going to be a great conversation. Oh, fantastic. And I, I'm just thrilled that both of you are here. Uh, Gwen, I just wanted to say thank you for being here and thank Smith Robertson Museum and Cultural Center for doing such a fine job preserving and telling Mississippi's rich history. And I look forward to talking with you a little bit about the latest exhibit y'all have got. And we'll talk a little bit as well. Uh, Hezekiah, I just, it's an incredible honor for me to be talking to you. Um, you've lived such a rich and meaningful life. And thanks for being with us today and sharing with some of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. You were 13. Uh, 13 when you and your friend went down to the bus station there in downtown Jackson, the Greyhound bus station. Freedom Riders were arriving. I think your mom told you to be careful and not do it. And uh, you went down. Uh, tell us a little bit what happened next. Well, well being 13, very curious about the Freedom Riders. Uh, I just went down to look at them. I wanted to see what a freedom rider look like. Uh, what a freedom rider dress like. Walk the whole nine yards. And while I was there, uh, just while we were there, my friend, as a joke, pushed me inside of the bus station. And I tried to run out like an exit. A police officer detained me and took me back in. Ask me two questions, your name and your birthplace. I gave my name and I told the boy in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And when I said Milwaukee, Wisconsin, he automatically assumed that I was a freedom rider. But uh, upon saying Milwaukee, I was arrested, taken to part of the prison and put on death row. See, that's, that, that's what blows me away. Number one, you were 13 years old. So, I mean, were you a big 13-year-old? I mean, why would he... You were a kid. And so... I was a kid. Yeah. I was a skinny, skinny kid. Yeah. Just doesn't make yeah. sense. And number two, wouldn't... Shouldn't they have... You said, no, I live here in Jackson. This is my address. They wouldn't listen to you. Instead, they wouldn't... I mean, that's what, to me, is... The, it's outrageous that, number one, that you went to Parchman. Well, obviously, I want you to continue that part of the story. But the fact that you couldn't get it cleared up between the time you went from Jackson to Parchman, that, that you were indeed from Mississippi, and the fact that they did that to you is just mind-blowing. Right. Well, I was able, as I told them, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, they yell, we have another one over here, which they would show to other officers there to come to their location. They had another freedom rider. I didn't realize that at the time. Yeah. But um, I'm trying to find out what's happening. What is going on? Why are you putting the handcuffs on? I was so scared out. And, uh, the officer drew his billet club back, but he didn't hit me. But he didn't have to say, shut up, but one time, and that was it. I didn't open my mouth until I got into the, uh, the paddy wagon. 
where we going? <laughs> Did you find out? Thinking of though we rode for days. I went to sleep, awakened, went to sleep again, and awakened and went to sleep again. I think the third time I was awakened, we was at Parkland Prison. I didn't know where it was. I, it, it seemed to be maybe some type of um, cancer, dormitory of some kind, and got this mattress that I could barely carry. God opened this cell and pointed at a bunk supposed to get down there, and which was on the bottom bunk. I got there and went to sleep. The next morning, I was awakened by two other prisoners that was in the cell with me, and they began asking questions about, why are you here? And I told them, I didn't know you where. So you don't know where you are? No, I don't. So you in Parson Prison. Parson who? I never heard of Parson Prison. Parson Prison. Yeah, you in Parson Prison. Okay. Uh-huh. Do you know what camp this is? Camp? It's not a vibe camp. I know. I know I'm in a cell, but the word camp, you know, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. Because this is a death row camp. I had never heard those two words. I said, death who? Death row. Okay, death row. What, what happened to death row? And I just couldn't believe that they were talking about taking my life for just entering the bus station. But the other prisoners that was in there, did not believe. They didn't believe about when it took the bus station that paid white owners. So they began taunting me about what was going to happen, hitting me upside the head, using me as a punching bag, taking my food. Um, it was horrible. Un- unbelievable. You were, I mean, you were thrown in with, in death row. 13 years old, your friend, What? whatever happened to your friend, by the way? And I mean, I know that's, did he, he... Did not go tell my mother, nor did he tell his mother. In the process, my mom was looking for me. That right. was like the whole community. Most of Jack was looking for me. So look at the time, in 1961, I'm told that there was white and black, mostly black, but there was white out as well. And the Jackson Police Department did not have a record of my being on And I'm told they searched for maybe 50. I'm not sure what the radius of Jackson, but they called other Palestine out but they had arrested or had to watch this. And they didn't have to worry about checking the hospital because we were allowed to enter those. But uh, no municipality had. The Jackson Police Department told my mom that I just ran away from home. So there was no record of your arrest. Your mom didn't know where you were. You're trapped in Parchman for how many, how many days were you there? Five days? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, how did you cope? I mean, how did you survive that? Because, I mean, you were being you were being abused by the prisoners there, and you didn't know when you were going to get out. That had to be, I mean, that's incredibly traumatic for a 13-year-old or anybody to have to go through, but you did. I don't know. I said, will of God, so several times I, I thought the prison was going to take my life. I even considered ways of doing it myself, committing suicide. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to return with our guest today. We've got the youngest living freedom writer, youngest freedom writer, Kai Watkins, and Gwen Harmon, director of the Smith Robinson Museum, are with us. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. 
Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. And if you're just tuning in, we have a great show. We have civil rights activist and director of Smith Robinson Cultural Center, Gwen Harmon, and the youngest freedom writer himself is with us back on the phone. Looking forward to talking to him a little bit. We got Hezekiah Watkins is here, too. Hezekiah, thank you for um, getting back. I mean, sorry, it was a little bit hard to hear you before, but I, you've got we got everything fixed a little bit. So your friend literally pushed you into becoming a freedom rider, whether you knew it or not. You were in Parchman. You got thrown in there. Your mom doesn't know where you are. How did they end up finding you, and, and how are you able to get back home? Well, that's a good question. Uh, of the great state of Mississippi, and his name is Ross Burnett. And we had a president of these United States, and his name was John Kennedy. These are things that I was told that the president called the governor, told the governor he did not want to see another Alabama in Mississippi. Whatever resources that you need, I am here, my brother is here to provide you with whatever. Now, these are some things that I was supposed to I suppose this is accurate, I don't know. But I'm told that after the conversation, the governor made a call and had me released. And I was brought to Jackson Police Department. In return, Jackson Police Department called my mother, told my mother to come to the Jackson Police Department. My mom was under the impression that she was going to the police department to identify my remains. Wow. Everybody had told her that I was sick. I was called being handcuffed and behind my back. And my mom actually hurdled the desk that was before her, jumped the chairs to get to me to give me a hug. I bet. Wow. And, and we fell to the floor crying real tears. And the other officers that was in the room had to help us up. And uh, we unhandcuffed me, and he was released. And walking down the hallway to go down to the police department, my mom was asking me about bruises, swelling, the bumps, and knots that was on my head. And, and I'm telling her, I'm, I'm okay, Mom. I'm okay. Let's, let's go on. Uh, and I was somewhat traumatized. But the closer we got home, I began to get a different feel. Now I'm free. I don't have to endure this treatment anymore. So I'm thinking about going home and taking a bath and changing clothes and going to the playground. Well, it wasn't a playground. The neighborhood school, which was Rowan uh, Middle School at the time, I wanted to run home and go down to the to Rowan and play tell the guys where I because no one in my community had ever been to prison or even jail that I knew of and you know I was a skinny kid so I thought I could get some respect I wanted to go there and say hey y'all I've been to prison show me some respect now but my mom had a different idea 
told me to get in the house and drop him. So she went from relief to pulling out the belt. <laughs> it wasn't no belt. It was a switch. Oh, okay. three switches. Yeah. She braided and became one. Ow, ow, ow. Okay. I hurt just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> So at that point, your career as a freedom writer was probably uh, wasn't going to happen. What what made the change in her mind? Because obviously, I mean, I can imagine. I mean, I'm just coming at this from a parent. Your son comes back from the dead, literally, and and then suddenly you're like, no, I don't think I want you back in that situation. So what prompted your mom and you to decide to literally go on to the I mean to the, the great record of being a freedom writer that you had, what what changed her mind and what changed your mind? It was a man by the name of James Bevel. He was an activist here in Jackson, a very good one. He was a planner, good one, probably one of the best. And he was a good spokesperson. And he was able to get to my mother and talk to her and he also was a minister, and my mom was a religious person. And he convinced her about the kids in the neighborhood who didn't know anything about God. And we need to teach these kids about God. And I have a book of testaments, a box of testaments. And he brought them to my mom's house, and the word got out that we was going to have a little Bible course there, and James brought over snacks. And actually, the kids came to get the snacks. They didn't care anything about um, getting the Bible. They wanted the, the snacks. But they was engaged because in order to get the snacks, he would turn to a, uh, a book of the Bible and give off the verse, and you had to stand up and, and read it. And after reading it, you got a snack. And the word got out that Hezekiah Watkins' house, man, they giving away free snacks. And the uh, crowd grew and grew and grew. And what Jane was doing was recruiting. And we moved from there to a church that wasn't far from my house. Jerusalem Church was the name of it. The, the last church was Megger gave his last speech was at that church. But nevertheless, uh, we moved to the church, and the pastor gave him a little office in there. And we began to walk downtown and look at things, and he began to talk to me about the injustice that was happening to us, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I remember once he used the word bigotry. And I said, bigotry? Bigotry. I didn't know what he was talking about. Racism and all of these things. We didn't talk about those things in school, on the playground, or any place else. So he educated me along with Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine. Began to read those magazines and, 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 and get educated about what was happening to us as a black race. And um, we went to a store by the name of A and P uh, grocery store. And we asked him what well, he did, asked the manager, why you don't have any black employees here? And the manager stated the reason is because they can't count. He said, what? He said, they can't count. That's why I don't have any. 
And that was the first uh, boycott and protest that we had. And it lasted about two weeks. And the manager came to the church one day and said, you all heard my business. You need to stop. Please stop. What can I do to get you to stop? And um, Mr. Bevel said, hire some black employees. He said, if you bring me three, I will hire them today. And he found three young ladies, and they was taken to the store, and he hired them. And that's when I really, really saw what we could do in terms of changing things. And I just stuck with it, and I went on to be arrested, so they say, 109 times. And I enjoyed every arrest except for the initial arrest, which was Barton Prison. Wow. Wow. Well, that I mean, you started in 1961. Let's flash forward to 1964. Um, Gwen, we're going to bring you into this, too, a little bit. And tell, before we tell a little bit about the, 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 the exhibit at Smith-Robertson Museum, because uh, there was a huge sit-in at the Woolworth counter in downtown Jackson at Woolworths. Um, and... and uh, just tell Hezekiah, you can talk about this too. I mean that that moment, and you know, of all the sit-ins all across the country, that, I think there were like three hundred of them, if I remember correctly. It was the most violent, and it was the one that I think people talk about the most. And I, I can literally close my eyes and see the video footage from that. Tell us a little bit about what happened on that day. Okay, well, I was there. I'm sorry, Gwen. No, go ahead, Heck. You, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna bow to you. <laughs> I'll chime in later, but please, I want to hear. I'd love to hear your account of it as well. Thank you. I was there, but I did not participate. As a matter of fact, I was told to not go. So I went, and I was kind of like in the far back, and the lunch counter was near the front of the store, and I saw what was happening, and it scared me to death. And I went out of another door and got on Ferris Street, and I went home. Wow. Well, and it was so hard. And it, I've heard you talk about how hard it was to, for, for just to get something to eat anyway. So, I mean, it's like you had to go to the back of the restaurant to get something to eat. So that was the whole point of the sit-in was to say, look, no, we deserve to eat just like everybody else up in exactly. the front, right front of the restaurant. Right. If they had been served then I believe I was going to go and get me a seat at that counter. But, yes, we had to go to the back of the restaurants to order a hamburger and french fries, Coke, or whatever. And, um, you know, I never did get the opportunity to sit at that lunch counter. Out of all the things that I wanted to do, I never did get that opportunity. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, wow. Gwen, obviously, I mean, the exhibit that you've got, it, it features this. Tell us a little bit about what happened on that day. Well, let, just, let me give you the historical perspective. Woolworth sure. in Jackson, Mississippi, was standard operating procedure for all public cafes, restaurants, et cetera, and, of course, Woolworths. Wherever there was a Woolworths during this dramatic time, it was, it was sort of the standard bearer for the students, and I say college students, who had been trained, had been working with SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, being trained on how to actually participate in the lunch counter sit-in movement. 
I remember as a child growing up in, in Mississippi, about an hour from Jackson, if I wanted to go to my little small town cafe, which was downtown Winona, uh, I was not allowed to go through the front doors. They called the city cafe. I had to go to the back door where they took the trash out. I'll tell the students who come here today, the back door was used to <laughs> distribute and take out the trash bags. But we were to knock at the back door. The black cook would come to the back door and ask, baby, what do you need? i say, cheeseburger and a Coke. She would then have to go get the white waitress. It was always a white person to take our money because the black employees are not allowed to touch the money. I would pay the white employee in the cafe, and she would put in my food order. They would hand my food to me in a brown paper bag out of the back door, and that was standard operating procedure. So come 1963, this whole movement took fire. I mean, it spread. We've got a we've got a map here in our exhibit space of World Wars that shows all the major cities where the the lunch counter sit-ins were, were happening. It's I mean, it reached it reached from Baltimore, Maryland to Miami, Florida, and all of those cities in between, the Carolinas, of course, Jackson, Alabama. Uh so there was there was there was a huge movement that took place to bring national attention to how the plight of being treated uh, unjustly and having desegregation, having segregation be a part of our everyday life. But even more than that, it, wa- it, it helped to galvanize a movement that just didn't start and end with Woolworths. It moved from Woolworths to public libraries, to public city zoos, to theaters. Everywhere that there was segregated seating, the sit-in movement was considered the catalyst and the the training to bring about those changes. So let's get to May 28th in 1963 here in Jackson, Mississippi. We had three students from Tougaloo College, well, two students and one professor. One student was a black female, Ann Moody. The other student was a white female, Ann Mulholland, Trompeteur. And then they had a white professor, Professor John Salter, also from Tougaloo. Now what set us apart a little bit here in Jackson a Woolworth sit-in was that you had two white students, two white participants, openly participating with the black sit-in student. That really created, and Hezekiah can probably speak to this, it was like that incited the crowd even more to more anger, to more violence. Um, and they treated the white participants the same as they did the blacks. So the, the three participants had been at the Woolworth over three hours sitting there. And that was a part of their training with SNCC. They had been taught, you will be ignored. Some participants in other cities would sit as long as eight hours and be totally ignored. They couldn't get a glass of water. They couldn't go to the bathroom. It was just, this is your training. You know what to do. This is what to expect. You will be yanked off the bar stool or the lunch counter stool. You will be arrested. This is what you do after you get arrested. This is who you call. This is who you ask for. You will be beaten. This is how you cover your head to protect your head when being kicked. This is how you cover your midsection when being stomped. This is the training. Once you pass the training, then you were a participant. The thing that really, I think, set Jackson apart was the, was the abject violence. It was, even though there were 300 of these going on across America, the Jackson sit-in became known as the most violent because it was a mob of, of white people, particularly white men, who started advancing on those three participants. And screaming racial insults at them wasn't enough. Then they started taking the sugar and salt 
uh, off the tables and pouring that on their heads. They took the mayonnaise and the mustard. They poured that on them. They threw coffee on them. They threw water on them. They lit cigarettes and put the lit cigarettes out on their bodies. They had brass knuckles. They were going to beat them to death if they could have. But calls did go back to the organizers, and one of those calls went to Medgar Evers. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, Medgar Evers was was a main part of the, the sit-in movement and getting attention via media coverage to what was happening. And they called Mr. Evers to say, this thing is about to get out of control. Maybe we should take the students out. And he said, what do the students say? Wow. And they said, we are not afraid. We're not le- we don't want to leave. And then uh, Medgar called local press and said, you need to get to Woolworths with your cameras and, and see what's happening. And that's why we have that iconic photograph showing them with the uh, condiment being poured over their heads, them sitting there stoically, just staring straight ahead, and the, the mob behind them. And they tell us, the three participants recounted that what happened was that when they looked around the Woolworths and they saw the crowd was growing and growing, they recognized Jackson police officers were inside the Woolworths, but they stood to the wall and never intervened. They recognized FBI agents also at the Woolworths, never intervened. And then when they were finally yanked from in front of the the counter, they were indeed, as they had been trained, they were taken to jail, not the the people who had been there doing the assaulting. Mm. So it became known as the most violent of the sit-in movement. Definitely. Um, I mean, poor Memphis Norman. I mean, he was kicked until he was bleeding out of, like I said, out of every every hole in his head. He was just, he was really beautiful. And was not given medical attention. He was taken to jail. Wow. Yes. Unbelievable. I mean, this literally, the the broken glass, the cigarettes, everything else, the stuff that you hear that happened to prisoners of war. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just incredible, the violence on that. But, you know, in a way, that violence came back to bite that mob because that was part of the thing that outraged everybody who saw it on television and during the nightly news to help push through the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It did. It did. And when that, and when that act was passed and then Woolworths, as they corporation made a public statement that with the passage of that legislation we can now serve all of our potential clients and customers with what you know the word vomit but i tell my students who come through today so when was the last time you saw a woolworth that's right and they are like wow and i said i remember the woolworth when i was a student at jackson state Um, i came to jackson state in 1974 and we used to walk from campus down to woolworth and not knowing as an 18-year-old, I was walking into a, to a building and I was covering the, the footsteps of people who had come before me who would, could have been killed. For me hmm. to be able to go to a counter and order a slice of cheesecake, that's what, it, that's what it boils down to, pennies now. And we just have to never forget the sacrifice that they made and the bravery and courage they exhibited for doing that. Incredible courage. All right, we're going to take our final break, and when we return, we're going to wrap up our conversation with Hezekiah Watkins and Gwen Harmon. And there's still time for if you'd like to join in, you can give us a call at 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you, 
and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey of Mississippi Today. If you're just joining us, we're talking with civil rights activist Hezekiah Watkins and director of Smith Robinson Museum and Cultural Center, Gwen Harmon. It's not too late. You can join in the conversation, 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. Hezekiah, you now volunteer um, up at the Civil Rights Museum, and you every day, I think about this all the time, especially when I was doing the kind of a little bit of background on you, you're talking to 13-year-olds every day about what you went through at 13, and you are literally looking at the thing, probably the most traumatic moment of your life. I, would, I just wanted to ask you, is, is volunteering and talking about this, is it something that is helpful for you, or is it something that triggers your PTSD on this? It's been very, very, very helpful. Good. The trauma that I went through, I held it all in all of these years. Yeah. And I still haven't spoken about the whole truth. Right. But by being at the museum, it helps. As a matter of fact, my doctor even stated, talk about it. And I've been able to talk about it to a certain point. But that point has helped me tremendously. And I'm very thankful for the museum. I'm very thankful that my doctor told me this. And I'm enjoying it. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. I mean, I hope to get down there and just become, be able to shake your hand and get to meet you. I, I'd met a, a gentleman named Tom Blakely down at the World War II Museum. He was in D-Day, and he killed a German, and he had nightmares about that German for his whole life until he came and volunteered at the museum. Once again, you know, just being able to talk about it helped him through the trauma, and so I'm thrilled to hear that, um, that you've done that. Gwen, you know, I think it's incredibly important to have exhibits like this, the sit-in at Smith Robinson, because it, it creates, you know, it's one thing to read about. It's another thing to see it in front of you in a three-dimensional way. Smith Robinson is a, a jewel. Uh, I was able to visit when I did Le- Leadership Jackson and, and check it out the, for the first time. And tell us a little bit about the museum and the history of it and some of the things that y'all have got going. Well, yeah, this is a, this is really a jewel uh, as far as how we uh, actually came to be. We didn't start off as a museum. The Smith-Robertson was initially the Smith-Robertson School. That's right. And it was a school that was started by a slave named Smith-Robertson who was in Alabama. And after the Civil War, he left Alabama and came to Jackson, Mississippi. He had a passion for educating, especially uh, black boys and girls. And so he started the Smith-Robertson School for colored boys and girls. And this is in the 1800s. Can you imagine that? And it became part of the community legacy this school did. In fact, one of our most renowned uh, students during the time it operated as a school was Richard Wright. Richard Wright came here as a student in 1923 and uh, graduated in 25 as the class about his class valedictorian. Uh, brilliant young mind, as we all know from his writings of Black Boy and Native Son. So, um, and it operated as a school up until 1970 believe it or not, oh, wow. and that was when the desegregation laws kicked in uh, that pretty much outlawed having segregated public schools, and so it sat empty after 1971. Nothing was happening here, and the building was in disrepair, and the city 
was going to actually tear everything down on this on this lot. And we had two community stalwarts, Dr. Jesse Mosley and Dr. Alfredine Harrison, who joined forces, went to the city council asking not to tear the property down, but to create a, a lasting living legacy to what it meant to the Jackson, Mississippi landscape when it comes to justice and freedom. And um, the council gave them a task, well, come back with some community support. And they never should have said that. <laughs> Actually, now I'm glad they did. Those two women got to, got together, and they got churches involved, sororities, fraternities, community organizations, the business community. Everyone standing on the corner waiting for a bus started signing this petition, and they overwhelmingly took that support back to the council, and they were able to get the property, um, form a nonprofit, and then start fundraising to create a museum. And in 1984, we opened as a museum, and so we housed... Um, a lot of the stories uh, about the Mississippi movement as it pertains to Mississippians who were pretty much the foot soldiers of the movement, and we wanted to tell that story a little bit separately, and in particular, the people who were connected to Jackson, Mississippi. So we're the, we're the smaller version of a huge civil rights museum, but we start with home. That's how we got to kind of like to describe it. We start here at home and let people learn about home first, and then they can go down to the State Museum, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. They can learn about the overall arching impact throughout the state of those leaders and those um, supporters and heroes. And, you know, listening to Heck's story, I've known Heck for almost over 40 years. We've been friends for a very long time, knew of his story, but never heard him recount it like he just did. And, um, I have so much so much respect for him. You know, heck, for the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Riders movement, I was working at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, and okay. my staff and I got, we got seats on the one of the buses. They had a, a caravan of buses that was going to retrace the route of the Freedom Riders, and uh, we got on one of those buses. We were actually on the bus with some of the original Freedom Riders. I think there were eight buses that they had. They were renting out, and so the museum rented. We got seats for our staff, and sitting on that one of the buses, listening to the people talk about what it was like, you know, 50 years earlier. And we even went to Parchment. We went to Parchment, uh-huh. and uh, and they, you could see the moment we turned onto those that 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 road leading to the property, to the facility. You could see the tears starting on yep. people who had lived it, like like heck had. It was just that fresh, just that raw. Uh, them telling what it was like when they saw those that that that, that barbed wire, you know, the, the the razor wire, they knew. Some heck didn't know, but the older ones knew exactly where they were, and there was just a sense of disbelief that they cannot be doing this to us. Um, that was for me and my staff one of the most remarkable exchanges I've ever had as an adult, listening to people recount that and and respect them for what they had to go through to survive that. So. And I'm able to now recount those kinds of stories here at Smith Robertson, having touched and, and talked to people who actually lived it, and let our young people know that this is a history that they should never forget. They should always dig into it. And more importantly, they should talk to their parents and grandparents and their neighbors. You can, you know, you can Google some things, but it's nothing like hearing it from the people who actually experienced it and made a difference while going through it. Amen. We're we're out of time, but I just wanted to thank both of you for joining us today. And um, this was a very powerful and wonderful show and meaningful, too. So thank you to you both for being part of it. Thank you for inviting thank you for me. Having We've got to do another follow-up. I know. I'm about to say we could probably do five more shows easily. So we'll we'll do that. I'd love to get you back on, both of you, and we'll talk to you again soon. 
That's great. I want to thank you again for listening and thank our guest, civil rights activist Hezekiah Watkins and director of the Smith-Robertson Museum and Cultural Center, Gwen Harmon. Great show today. If you'd like to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to our podcast on our favorite podcast app or on MPB Public Media app. Now Your Tongue's production of MPB Think Radio is produced by Michelle McAdoo. Stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Josie Bidwell and join us next week at 10 a.m. for another great conversation here on MPB Think Radio. Y'all have a great week.